There's not much simpler in the kitchen than slowly cooking butter until it turns brown. And there's not much more complex than the flavor that results. We'll go into the kitchen to brown some butter and then use the resulting ghee to make a couple of dishes from the land where brown butter is beloved, India. From KBBI in Homer, Alaska, my name is Jeff Lockwood, and it's time to check the pantry. think of cooking as applied chemistry, and you should, because it is, you'll soon come across one of the most fundamental transformations in the kitchen, the Maillard reaction, named after its first describer, the French chemist Louis-Camille Maillard. After making important contributions to the study of kidney disorders, he turned his attention to cooking and first began to tease out the ways in which particular combinations of amino acids and sugars would, under the influence of heat, develop completely different chemical compounds that totally altered their flavor and color. It's one of the two major browning reactions in the kitchen, the other being caramelization. The difference between them is that caramelization involves sugars alone, while Maillard brings amino acids into the equation as well. The term Maillard reaction is something of a misnomer, in fact. There are thousands of possible chemical changes under its umbrella, and even today, over 100 years after it was first described, only a small amount of the Maillard space has really been mapped. It doesn't really get going with any speed until around 300 degrees, which means that the presence of free water hinders it. That's why cooking show hosts are always reminding you to dry the surface of your meat before you put it on the grill, or making you go through the bother of letting a panko crust set up a bit before you drop your fish cake into oil. That doesn't mean it requires a dry environment, though. Whenever paleontologists find ancient humans or extinct animals preserved in peat bogs, they're preserved by the Maillard reaction. The acidic environment interacts with amino acids in the corpse to create the exact same chemical transformation that turns french fries from boring old potatoes into the foundation of a multi-billion dollar hamburger empire. In the same way that a simple caramel made by melting sugar until it browns is perhaps the purest form of caramelization we produce in the kitchen, brown butter or ghee might be the most elemental Maillard flavor we can make. Nothing more than the gentle heating of milk solids and milk sugars, the resulting change flavors the remaining fat with something new, intense, and decidedly unlike the starting point, sweet, mild, pale, yellow butter. One pound of butter into a saucepan. 454 grams will, at the end of this process, yield roughly 82% of that weight because we are going to cook all of the water out. We are going to strain out the milk solids and we are going to end up with a pot of delicious brown beautiful, long-lasting, shelf-stable ghee, aka brown butter, or if you're feeling French, bernoisette. Although, bernoisette typically implies that you're also keeping the solids. In my days when I'm really on the ball and keeping a well-stocked pantry, I, lo I love keeping this stuff around because it's so useful. But over the last year, <laughs> I really haven't done near as much cooking as I would like to. Thanks, COVID. Um, and, I, and I typically, if I'm just cooking for myself and my wife, I don't really go that nuts. I love to, I love to cook and be semi-elaborate, but only for other people. For my, myself, I really kind of, I'll just eat a sandwich, you know? <laughs> 
my productivity in the kitchen has gone way down. And one of the consequences of that means that I'm not really together enough usually to have things that are very simple to make in large quantity and keep on hand for when you want them, but are really pain to try to make at the last minute when you just want to cook something real quick. And uh, one of those things is ghee, which is very simple to make. It's so simple to make that I'm actually just going to sit here and run my mouth because I don't have to do anything other than watch this pot of butter melt and turn brown. But it takes a while to get made correctly. So it's not a last minute production. And it's magnificent to have on hand. This is hands down, as far as I'm concerned, this is the best oil or the best fat you can, you can pan fry fish in. It is just amazing for any kind of fish. Um, whitefish, salmon, salmon cooked in brown butter is like the greatest tasting salmon that you're ever going to find because the way that the way that salmon's flavor interacts with that nutty brown flavor is just it's unreal a thing that i am actually really excited about here is that uh, i'm actually going to wind up with twice as much brown butter as i originally intended to because i and all any any soundy recorder type out there will know this pain intimately the first of these that i did um i did not press the arm button on the recorder. So even though it was recording, it was recording nothing. <laughs> so if uh, you just imagine that all of this stuff that I'm about to say, I guarantee you it was amazing the first time around. So if there's anything you disagree with or, or think could have been phrased better, just imagine how it should have been because that's how it definitely was. So my butter is slowly melting and one of the immediate characteristics of melted butter, uh, slightly melted butter, is that it's, while it's still a little bit emulsified before it really starts to separate, it's got sort of a characteristic milky color that will gradually over time create, the first product that it will create is of course clarified butter. Clarified butter being best known, at least in these parts, as the ideal dipping sauce for various flavors of seafood, particularly crab or if you're on the East Coast, lobster. And clarified butter is magnificent stuff, but it's not as magnificent as brown butter. Clarified butter, you just cook all the water off. Brown butter, you cook all the water off, and then you let the butter darken. You let those milk solids that are composed of proteins and sugars, you let those darken and contribute their fat-soluble flavors into the rest of the fat. Then you strain those out for ghee. Now, if you're making, if you're just making bernoisette and you want to use it for making pastries and stuff, a lot of times you'll, you'll keep those because they do contribute a lot of flavor and they're really pretty, you know, the little flecks of brown. They're nice looking, but we're making ghee. Ghee, of course, being the Indian name it is considered the premier cooking fat in India. Everybody would like to use more of it, although they cannot always afford it. And I was feeling a little bit Indian today, so I'm going to, I've been consulting my various Indian cookbook sources. If I'm gonna make, if I'm gonna go to the trouble of making some ghee, I'm gonna go to, go to the, go to the trouble of making something Indian. I'm gonna make some dal, of course, some lentils uh, in a little while. And I'm gonna make a lamb. I found some lamb, I'm very excited. Uh, lamb is, <laughs> Lamb's hard to come by in the U.S. sometimes. And I found some lamb shoulder that I'm gonna make uh, lamb do piazza, which is a dish, basically lamb smothered in onions. And I'm very excited about that because I love onions. So we're gonna make that a little later, but first we have to finish making the ghee. Right now you can hear it bubbling away as it gets up to 212 degrees and begins to cook the water out. It is quite foamy and the bubbles are large. They will become smaller over this entire process. And at the very end of it, they'll become very, very tiny and then they'll finally go away. And then that's pretty much when you know that your ghee is finished. The aim here is to completely dehydrate it. Typically in clarified butter, you know, you're, where you don't want it to get brown. You're just gonna go until the simmering mostly stops. And then the clarified butter is also known as drawn butter because the way that you make it is instead of filtering it, it typically gets drained. You, you tilt the pan and you draw off the top of the butter and then leave any milk solids and any residual water 
in the pan at the end. You can see once the once you've finished pouring off the clear butter, then you just leave the the stuff at the end. But the way that we make ghee is that we actually cook until all the water is gone and all of the moisture has evaporated. And at that point, the, the solids are quite brown and quite nutty and quite delicious, which may or may not be what you want with your seafood. You know, the, when you're using clarified butter with, you know, something like crab or lobster, those are pretty delicately flavored seafoods, you know, and if you want to get that really clear, briny, you know, sweet taste of, of the meat, you don't want that nuttiness necessarily to cover it up. It gets really, all of a sudden, you're just tasting the brown butter. You're not actually tasting the, the crab meat or the lobster, which is one of the reasons why it's much more common to just have clarified butter there. Clarified butter is a little bit more, it's almost a little like pork fat, where it's very neutral in flavor, and it's not adding a whole lot of its own character. It is adding a, quite a bit of texture, and it's the kind of texture that only a, a, a very saturated animal fat can give something, which is that really, really crispy and uh, completely non-greasy feeling. Like it's really shattery and dry. Because there's so much saturated fat in animal fats, they tend to be, uh, they tend to have that character. And their melting point, as we talk on the show all the time, their melting point is at or below normal body temperature, which is advantageous for texture as well. It's always, you know, before I really knew very much at all about Indian food history, it always struck me as a little odd uh, that, you know, the, the sort of iconic Indian cooking fat is an animal fat, ghee, you know, I think when you don't know much about India and you're living in the West, you tend to think, oh, they, they're vegetarian and they eat a lot of vegetables, and yes, that's true. Well, then why did something like ghee become so, you know, so iconic? And even if people were too poor to necessarily eat it, it was still considered like that's what you wanted unless you were completely vegetarian. And I think it's, it's kind of important to remember that for a lot of human history, vegetable oils were not at all the predominant cooking fat. And they really have only become the predominant cooking fat in the last maybe two to 300 years outside of certain areas. Uh, the most obvious, you know, when we think of it in the West, the most obvious place where vegetable oil was super predominant is the Mediterranean, of course, with olive oil. And there are a few other places. There's in parts of West Africa, palm oil has, has a long, long history. Um, sesame oil has been used a lot, although not necessarily as a cooking oil because it really breaks down pretty quick under heat, but certainly as a flavoring agent. And the same thing for nut oils. All of those oils are kind of tied to particular types of plants. They're plants that it's really fairly easy to extract the oils from, mostly by pressing, and then in some cases also by rendering. Or fermentation sometimes is, is done, like in the case of uh, palm oil, I believe. The palms are fermented, you know, but, but things like coconut oil or olive oil, like these are, they're easy to extract the oil from these plants. But when you think of, you know, what are the most common cooking oils that we use today, the most common vegetable oils outside of olive oil is typically things like safflower oil, corn oil, uh, canola oil, and a few other of these types of oils that essentially didn't really exist uh, before industrialized agriculture and industrial refining processes because they're a lot more challenging to get out of the plants. A lot of them, there's there's extensive refining steps that need to take place. And, you know, sometimes certain chemical treatments have to be done. Certain very specific heating has to take place. So for a long time, if you didn't live in one of the areas where oil producing plants, where the, the sort of premier oil producing plants lived, you didn't use them. They weren't portable. They typically did not last as long as their comparable animal animal derived counterparts. They they typically would go rancid much quicker. I'm moving over to my simmer burner. You can also use a flame tamer or just turn your heat way, way down as low as you can possibly get it. Because the big bubbles are gone away and now I'm just into a simmer on my ghee. So I want to get my heat as low as we can get it because now the milk solids are beginning to settle out and I want to make sure 
that the ones that sink and settle out first don't start to burn before my ghee is done. That's the only real danger that you can have here. And the simplest way I find really to, to tell that I'm done here is that you start to see a, a, a foam on top. And that's gonna be mostly uh, the milk proteins and the, the sugars, but mostly the proteins, basically forming, you know, just a, a, a foam. That's what proteins and sugars can do when they get together like this. They trap air, the proteins trap air as they start to coagulate. And the way to really tell that your ghee is done is that that foam will start to dissipate. Right now it's completely covering the surface and I'm getting a couple of areas of definite bubbling, like the water, the last water in here is cooking out. It's tiny, tiny bubbles and the foam is very small. When I push the foam away, it starts to fill in very quickly because there's still bubbling happening. And so once we get to the point where when I shove the foam away, it all kind of gathers together because there's no more, there's no new foam being produced. There's no new air being trapped because there's no agitation from the little bubbles. That's when you know, okay, we've cooked all the water out. We are pretty much shelf stable at this point. And now we can basically stop once we've achieved the degree of brownness that we desire. And again, we want to be really careful because we don't want to burn this. If you're not in a place where it's relatively easy to grow large quantities of certain types of fruits, vegetables, berries, you know, seeds, whatever it is that, that you're able to relatively easy, easily extract oil from, if you don't live in one of those places, you don't really have much choice. You are pretty much going to be using animal fat. And the simplest animal fat for a lot of places throughout Europe, Asia, and Africa was cows and butter. And not just cows, but also the various flavors of buffalo, water buffalo, yak, you know, whatever, whatever particular bovine critter did really well in your area. Because cow milk, unlike sheep milk and unlike goat milk, separates. And so, the, you know, the cream rises to the top, which makes it really easy to pull the cream out and turn it into butter, at which point now you have a much more shelf-stable product, something that can last for a little while. But because butter has a lot of water and a lot of sugar and a lot, relatively speaking, milk sugars, and still has a lot of protein, it has a lot of different places for various uh, either um, pathogenic bacteria, although that's not as much of a concern in butter, but the big thing they worry about in butter is oxidation, um, rancidity, because there's a lot of free oxygen in that water that can interact with the air and turn the whole mess kind of sour and rancid and give it that, you know, you know what that taste is. It's, it's, it's gross. It sucks. <laughs> And, uh, you know, which is one of the other issues with a lot of vegetable oils is that they're also really prone to rancidity. But if with something like butter, you render out all of the water by cooking it and strain out all of the, the solids, you're left with something that is pure fat. And pure fat, particularly of the saturated types of fat that are common in animal fats, pure fat with a certain amount of saturation is pretty resistant to oxidation. And so pretty resistant to rancidity, even in a place like India, that's very hot and very humid, in which uh, without any protection can pretty easily, fats can start to turn pretty fast. So they had a decent population of some cows and I think buffalo is, tends to be various kinds of water buffalo slash yak. And so it becomes relatively easy to, to manufacture a highly portable, highly shelf-stable fat, hence ghee. And they also weren't typically raising these animals specifically for meat. They were raising them for other reasons. You know, as we all learn from a very young age, the, the cow is considered sacred in most parts of India, depending, well, depending, <laughs> depending on a lot. India is a very large place, so it's hard to generalize. But uh, particularly within Hinduism, the cow has a, a, a special status. In the Islamic parts of India, they eat a lot more beef. But they, were, they weren't necessarily raising them as meat animals. They were draft animals. Uh, they were dairy animals. And in fact, it, was, it didn't make much sense to kill them because they had more value elsewhere. 
and we are basically done here. It is a beautiful, beautiful brown. The ghee itself is very, very dark brown, but it does not have a burned smell. So I'm gonna go ahead and shut that off. And that was about 25 minutes start to finish. A lot of the timing will change, of course, depending on how hot you cook things. And uh, I started it fairly hot. It's hard to say exactly how long it'll take because I don't know exactly what temperature you're cooking it at. So low key, most important kitchen tool, as I always say, is a strainer. And I've just strained my ghee because the other thing that we want to do, remember, is to capture all of our brown bits. We don't want them to go into the ghee. If you are so inclined and you are a thrifty sort, what you can do is save the browned bits. Because if you are inclined at some point to make something, particularly something in the pastry realm, which uses brown butter, a very simple way to even further intensify the brown butter flavor is to stir in a few actual brown butter solids. But you know, if you're making like a custard or whatever, even if you don't want to go through the trouble of, of making a brown butter, or if it doesn't have any butter in the recipe, you can just add a few of those, add a few of those to a vanilla custard and suddenly you have a brown butter custard that is quite delicious and you don't have to sit around making brown butter. Now I have lots and lots of ghee, which is very exciting because there is so much that you can do with this stuff. Any oil-based, particularly cakes, uh, I mean, I'm not even talking about cakes that are based on brown butter, like a financier or something like that, where the brown butter is like the point of the cake. But oil-based cakes, like carrot cake is, I think I've made a brown butter carrot cake on the show a while back. But any of those oil-based cakes will do very, very well with brown butter instead of oil. You got to heat it up beforehand, of course, because typically brown butter, especially if it's kept in the refrigerator, is going to be firm. It, and the refrigerator will get hard at room temperature. It stays pretty firm, a little bit soft. But, you know, you can't use it for for pastries where you need, like, the textural uh, qualities of butter. You know, you can't make croissants with brown butter. But you could sprinkle some of the brown butter solids into your lamination and get a little bit of brown butter character in your croissant. But you can't use it because it, it's not, it doesn't at all have the same textural qualities as butter. You can't just sub brown butter weight for weight into like a pie dough. It's just not going to work. Unless it's, an, it's like a pat in the pan pie dough that's based on melted butter. That will work. So anything based on a melted, a melted or a liquid fat, you can, you can just sub this brown butter in one for one. Um, but if it requires cold butter, you know, like a lot of American butter cake recipes or pie doughs or things like that, those you can't. But anyway, so I've got all this brown butter and now it's time to make the rest of the meal, which I'm very excited about because it annoys me that Indian food is not everywhere because um, I love this stuff. There should be like Indian fast food restaurants that are like horribly inauthentic, but still delicious on every corner. And, uh, and then also awesome Indian restaurants where they really go nuts in every town, but there's not. And that's just the world that we live in. So if you want it, if you want the flavors, you, you gotta, you gotta suck it up and learn how to do it yourself, which is challenging because, uh, India is a large place with a lot of different kinds of cooking. And it's really easy to make something that's not that great. I'm gonna have a proper Indian meal. I gotta make some, some sort of legume. And so today I have got a bunch of, this is something I've never cooked before. This is a tour dal. And these are in English. The most common name is pigeon peas. They're very popular in the Caribbean. All this stuff is stuff I was not really aware of until my bedside reading of the excellent book, which I dip into periodically. Beans, a history by a guy named Ken Albala. And it is literally a history of the various kinds of beans. And of course, he's got an entire chapter on India because in India, beans are 
more beloved than probably anywhere else. And one of the things that he, that he talks about in the book, actually, is that uh, particularly in Europe and in the European-derived countries, beans are sort of seen as the food of the poor. Like, there are a lot of bean dishes that are kind of beloved, you know, but only as kind of a now we don't have to eat beans anymore sort of sort of deal like people aspire to wanting to eat meat and he says in his whole chapter on on beans in india that india is really one of the one of the few uh, civilizations that where that's actually flipped around in india you know at least you know historically mostly before british imperialism came along and completely transformed the society the highest caste the brahmins ate beans and, and considered the eating beans to be sort of a, a, a symbol of pure spirituality and like the highest way of living. And so there's still this intense association in Indian, in the various Indian uh, cultures that beans are actually almost an aspirational food, even though they're not, even though they do make up the overwhelming majority of, you know, protein for most Indians, that there's not the same stigma about beans as there tends to be in, um, in European-derived civilizations. And in fact, he, he points out in most places, you know, beans are what you eat when, you, when you're too poor to afford meat. But in India, they're seen as having a lot more cultural importance than we typically associate them with. And these are, again, these are, this is tour doll, and I'm making them according to Matter Jaffrey's, the actual recipe that I happen to be using here is one for, originally for chana doll, which is uh, split chickpeas, but they didn't have any chana doll at the store when I looked, so I bought tour doll instead. And doll, anytime you see doll in any sort of Indian food, it means that the pea is going to be split, or the bean, it's split. It's not the whole. It's split so it cooks faster, it's going to be a lot softer. And typically they'll be kind of cooked into sort of a puree with assorted spices. And we'll get to the spices a little bit later. So the beans are cooked uh, with a little turmeric and a little ginger until they are done and, you know, pretty mushy. Uh, a nice porridge of beans, basically. And then at the end, we take our ghee and we cook a few other additional spices in the ghee. And then you add that in, you stir that in as a flavoring agent at the very end. Instead of cooking all the spices inside or in the, in the actual puree, which does tend to, like when you long cook spices like that, because you lose a lot of the aromatics, you get kind of, where you can't really taste the individual spices, you just get kind of a generic, vaguely... Indian-like spice flavor instead of tasting, oh, this is cumin, oh, and now I'm getting a little cloves, and oh, I'm getting this. So it's a little bit more sophisticated way of treating the spices because you're not just kind of throwing them all at the wall and seeing what sticks. You're really trying to coax the best out of them. And this is something that Indian cooking is really like, that's kind of the centerpiece of a lot of Indian cooking is that very, is a very sophisticated way of cooking spices. And it's the one thing, it's the thing that I don't really get. Like, I mean, I get that there's, you know, cumin, you know, that there's all the different spices, but, but sometimes they're ground and sometimes they're, they're mixed with water and sometimes they're cooked whole and they go in at different times. And there's a whole level and a whole language of the way that Indian cooks treat spices that I just, I don't get, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm sort of reliant on, on recipes in a way that I'm not, you know, when I'm, when I'm cooking in, in languages that I'm much more comfortable with, because I don't understand like why in one situation, in one recipe, do you keep the cloves whole and cook them in oil and then take them out? Whereas in another one, you pound your cloves and you mix them with water and then cook them in oil and you leave them in. Or like in this one, do you cook all your spices in the ghee and add them at the end? Why don't you do that in the beginning? And I personally do not entirely understand that, but it's the kind of thing that you don't really grasp during the process, but when you eat it, you can tell. You know, it's pretty easy to tell when, <laughs> when you're eating really super well done Indian food by someone, you know, or any kind of food by someone that really knows what they're doing and knows how to handle all the different ingredients versus, you know, <laughs> here's some curry powder that I just dumped into a pot of peas. It's not the same thing at all. This is why so much, you know, when you're learning to cook outside your own 
you know, your own cultural background and your own cultural cuisine, you're heavily dependent on who you're learning it from. You know, if you're learning it from people that really don't know much, like if I wrote an Indian cookbook, you wouldn't, you wouldn't learn very much because I don't know the ins and outs. I don't have the, the level of familiarity with, with the culinary language to understand why all these things are happening. But if you read a book by somebody who is intimately familiar with that cuisine, but doesn't necessarily know how to translate it for someone who's not, then you can get into the situation like you can get into really easily when you look at like 19th century French cookbooks, where it's pretty obvious that the person writing the cookbook assumes that you have a lot of knowledge about very specific things. And if you don't have that knowledge, you're kind of lost, which is why, you know, somebody like Matter Jaffrey, who is Indian, but who is also has extensive experience in, particularly in the UK, she was a Merchant Ivory act actress in Merchant Ivory films for years. And, uh, but she also has long had this, this sort of sideline in translating the various Indian cuisines into something that people in the Anglosphere can understand. Like, she's not pulling punches. She's not really, she's not dumbing it down for you, but she's making it, what she's doing is she's taking uh, something that's, that's very complex and foreign to, you know, people in the West and turning it into something that they can understand. It's a translation. And, and that is incredibly valuable. And it's really, it's kind of the only way that, that unless you become a serious student of a particular cuisine, it's the only way that you can really get a window into what other people are doing. And it really is like a language. I can't myself read Italian. So in what sense have I read the Divine Comedy? I mean, I've read English translations. Have I read the actual book? Like how much familiarity with it can I really genuinely say that I have? And, and it's, a, it's a large topic and it's certainly worth not claiming yourself to be too much of an expert in something that you're not. But at the same time to really, you know, to grow as a person and to have experiences that are beyond your own, whatever you grew up with, which for some of us is a worthwhile pursuit. Ooh, these smell very good. Mm, this, is a, this is a really interesting uh, aroma, actually. They've definitely got, it's a very, I haven't added the ginger and the turmeric yet, I'm about to. So this is just the beans and the salt. There's like a slight, there's a real earthiness to the, to the smell, almost like the springtime like dirt when you first start digging into it. It's got that kind of, it's got that kind of feeling. It's quite delicious smelling actually. So Ms. Jaffrey would like me to slice some ginger pretty thin, about an inch worth of ginger. And she wants me to put that into the pot. And she wants me to add some turmeric, half a teaspoon. And these, these uh, tour doll, the pigeon peas, they're pretty yellow already. So the turmeric is just making them slightly more vibrant. It's kind of a spiciness now that's starting to come to the fore. Add a little bit more water just to make sure that they're covered. But yeah, now it's very, even the addition of a very small amount of turmeric has, now it's very mustard yellow almost. Now she wants me to cover it as I get up back up to a boil a little simmer here. I had boiled away a little bit of the water, so I just added a little bit more. She's gonna have me cover this, simmer gently for one and a half hours or until it's tender. And then I can start my lamb dough piazza. All right, and we have to do some slicing. We're looking for multiple onions. All right, so I'm scaling down a little from this recipe, which is for two and a half pounds of lamb. I've got like half of that. So I'm gonna scale down the rest of it accordingly. So I've got two onions where she originally called for four. And what she wants me to do is slice them, cut them in two different ways and keep them separate. So she wants me to cut one into a fine mince which I'm gonna make it one half, since I'm having all of her. Half an onion into a fine mince, and that's what we'll start with. And the rest, we're going to, as they say, French them. 
like we do for caramelized onions, which is done by cutting off the root, cutting off the stem, having the onion, bisecting it, laying it down flat. The next thing she wants me to do is to puree some ginger and some garlic, which I'm going to do because I'm not going to bust out my blender or my food processor for this relatively small amount of stuff. So she wants seven cloves of garlic, which I'm having the recipe. So let's go with five cloves of garlic. <laughs> it's close enough to half. And I'm going to put these into my mortar and pestle. Uh, and I'm also remember keeping my onions, my two my two cuts of onions separate from each other. And she also wants me to get myself another inch or so of ginger unpeeled. Realizing that you don't really need to peel ginger, you know, unless, unless it's for presentation purposes. Man, that was a great moment in my culinary career. Peeling ginger sucks. Huge waste too. So I'm just gonna pound these in my mortar and pestle. Again, you can use a blender if you want. That's what she calls for. She wants me to add a little bit of water to my puree. Just a little bit. Keep blending to get it into a nice, smooth, moist puree. So now that we've got the basic prep going, now she wants me to use a little more than a quarter of a cup of, well, she says vegetable oil, but it's brown butter, so I'm going to use ghee. Somehow I don't think that Matter Jaffrey would be too mad at me for this. So we're going to add all of this. This is going to get nice and hot, and after it heats up sufficiently, we're going to fry our sliced onions, not the minced onions. We're going to fry the sliced ones. We're gonna fry these first. We're gonna get a nice oniony flavored oil. And then we're gonna carry on uh, browning the meat, actually. Heat this oil till it shimmers. So our tour doll is, just took a quick look at it. It looks like it's cooking nicely. It's gonna make a nice, a nice puree. I'm gonna serve this with, I think I'm gonna serve this with rice. I thought about making some naan, but I decided against it. You know, it's, well, I can't technically make full-on naan because that needs to be cooked in a tandoor. But I can make a very similar flatbread just cooked on a, a griddle. Got a little shimmer happening here. So let's go ahead and add all of our finely sliced onions. And we're gonna be cooking these for a little bit. For She wants me to cook them for 10 to 12 minutes until they are nicely brown. And then they'll actually get pulled and they won't get added back into the stew until quite a bit later. I'm gonna keep my heat fairly pretty high here. And I'm also, you know, one of the things is kind of against my, all of my innate culinary instincts would be to salt these onions right now. But I'm not going to, she doesn't call for it. And I've seen a lot of recipes like this don't actually call for it. And I'm thinking that the reason that we're not gonna do it here is because we still want these onions to have a fair amount of uh, solidity and texture at the end of them. If I salt right now, it'll draw out a lot of the water, but it'll also soften them up quite a bit. I'm gonna fight my instinct, and I'm just gonna go, I'm gonna go with, the, with what the person from this particular culture is telling me to do, which is not to salt my onions. How much of my life have I spent standing over a pot watching onions cook? Time well spent, you know. In terms of things that are beneficial to the world, cooking onions, it is way up there. Okay, we are edging up onto these onions being done. So we're not quite caramelizing them. This is uh, this is more of a, what they call in India, brown frying. It happens at a hotter heat and it happens for a shorter amount of time. So my edges of my onions are just starting to become sort of dark brown and crispy. And the bulk of the onions are kind of a light, sort of sandy reddish brown. So we're gonna get a pretty complex onion flavor. It's not gonna have, you know, the almost candy sweetness of caramelized onions, but it's it's gonna have, you know, a, a pretty complex mix of sweetness with a little savory. Some of the some of the pungency will still be in here. You know, a slight bitterness from the 
from the crispy brown edges. They still have a lot of texture. You know, they're not nearly as soft as, as a caramelized onion would be. And they haven't, they've, they haven't given up nearly as much of their water. So they're still pretty, pretty firm and a little bit of crunch left to them. But it's not like, you know, if, we full, if you fully caramelize the onions, they, they started out covering the whole bottom of the pot. And then all of a sudden you're left with like, you know, barely a third of the, the pot covered. In this case, I can spread them out still so that they do cover the pot. So there's still a fair amount of volume in here, but uh, they're just, they're considerably softer. They're considerably browner. They still have integrity to them. We haven't, we haven't completely turned them into like onion jam, which is kind of the goal of a lot of caramelizing. So I'm just gonna set these aside, drain out some of the fat back into the pot. Some of it will obviously come along, but that's okay. And we'll keep the main part most of the fat left in the pan for the next step, which is gonna be browning the meat. Grab my lamb, and I am gonna go with one of my instincts here, specifically because she wants you to brown this, and she calls for cutting, all, cutting it up into chunks. Now, I happen to have a couple of lamb shoulder steaks here, and I personally have found that if you wanna brown meat, the larger chunks you can uh, go with the better. It happens a lot faster if you just do it in big chunks, like in big steaks like this. And then after you get it browned, then you can cut it up into smaller pieces. So I'm gonna do that. And what you're supposed to do here is add a couple of cardamom pods and a couple of cloves directly to the oil. And you're supposed to add a cinnamon stick and I don't have a cinnamon stick, so I'm not gonna add powdered cinnamon to it just because I'm pretty sure that that would burn. So she wants 10 cardamom pods and 10 cloves just to flavor everything. I can cut it down a little bit because I got a smaller amount of So I'll do five cardamom pods and five cloves. So we're just gonna flavor this oil and drop it in here cook it for just a few seconds just till it starts to cook and the recipe is not super clear on whether or not I should be leaving them in or pulling them out <laughs> she doesn't tell me she doesn't explicitly tell me to pull them out so I'm gonna leave them in got my lamb in I'm guessing because once you drop the lamb in, it's gonna cool down the temperature of the oil so you don't have to worry about these burning. Once the, once the lamb's browned, you know, got a little brown on them, at this point, pretty much everything's gonna be happening uh, with water. So we're not gonna have to worry too much about burning. You know, and something that did just happen is that now the, there's a very deep onion flavor sort of built into the oil that everything else is gonna get cooked in. So we're already starting from a very intense kind of flavor point. That's just gonna get carried through the rest of the dish. All right, starting to get a little brown on the lamb. So I'll flip both of those over. Okay, I got a little brown on the outside of my lamb. Gonna move on to the next phase here, which is cooking my finely chopped onion and actually starting to build the sauce in the main part of the dish. So now I'm gonna add the finely chopped onion, cook on medium heat, says Matter Joffrey, until it starts to brown around the edges. Start getting ready for the rest of the dish. So we're gonna need some coriander and some cumin. That is gonna go into the mortar and pestle as soon as I vacate it, which will be pretty shortly because the onions, or the garlic and the ginger currently holding court in the mortar and pestle. And I'll go ahead and get the rest of the stuff ready for addition, which is gonna be some yogurt. I'm not really clear exactly on uh, whether Indian yogurt is uh, more like Greek yogurt or more like regular yogurt. I don't know how strained it is. So I have Greek yogurt, so we'll see. Okay, we're starting to get some crispy brownness around the edges of our minced onions. Let's add as she says, my pureed garlic and ginger. And she says to let this go 
So most of the water boils away and we start to see the oil again. So that'll take a little bit. Then we'll add some coriander, tablespoon of coriander. So less than that because I'm doing half. So that's about a half a tablespoon. And a couple teaspoons of cumin. Give my coriander and my cumin a quick grind. Still got a little water in here, simmering away. Okay, definitely see the oil again now. Spread that out a little bit. Turn the heat down. Add the coriander and the cumin. Let that go. Ooh, yeah. Mm. Hello, coriander and cumin hit oil. So now that they're all in there, the matter wants me to add three tablespoons, maybe a little more, of yogurt. And she wants me to add it a tablespoon at a time just until it gets incorporated into the puree. So it's kind of a slow heating, I'm guessing because, you know, yogurt's not like cream. You can't like cook it super hot because it'll break really easily. So I'm just supposed to incorporate it into the sauce, which I have now. And the sauce is now, it's very, very thick puree. Definitely the onions have started to lose their integrity a little bit. And remember these are the, the finely chopped onions, not the, these are the minced onions, not the, uh, not the lengthwise French onions. And now I am supposed to add right about a cup of water and the rest of my meat. So I'll go ahead and add the, incorporate the water first just to get that in. I'm gonna go ahead and add my, my meat plus any juices, which there are some. What else does she want? Rain water, the cayenne, which I need to add some pepper, but I'm not gonna add cayenne. First, I'm gonna add a little salt. But instead of cayenne pepper, I have got these lovely Lady Choi's that have been hanging in my window that I grew in my greenhouse last year. And we're gonna add, we're gonna grind those up and add those. Lady Choi's are, they're Korean pepper that are supposedly the ideal pepper for gochujang, but which I just dried a bunch. And now that I've burned through all my pickled peppers and such, and I've only got a little bit left of my amazing hot sauce, I'll go ahead and use these guys up. Although I've got quite a few of them. Really saved the dry peppers. Oh, they got a gorgeous kind of fruity aroma. These are gonna be really nice in here. That was five peppers. It's gonna get me so much. It's not gonna be, it's gonna be a solid tablespoon of flakes. So I think we'll get a, Decent amount of heat out of these, but I'm hoping for a lot of fruitiness and a lot of that really nice sort of bright summery pepper flavor, which in the middle of March is gonna be most welcome. And at this point, according to Ms. Jaffrey, I should be walking away. Walk away for 45 minutes. So I'm gonna do that. See you in a little bit. All right, we're here at the end stage of my process here. My tour doll is pretty well done. It is a nice yellow mush. No other way to describe it. It is definitely a mush. And this is, uh, I think I started with probably two cups of uh, the peas and then maybe four or five cups of water or something like that. So taking that off the heat, the more, I, the more I sort of think about this step, the more interested in it I am because it's not something I've ever really um, encountered before in Western bean recipes because usually whenever I've made beans, you know, red beans and rice or anything like that, pretty much everything goes in the pot at the beginning. And right now I've uh, got some more of my Lady Choi peppers. But again, you can use any chili powder uh, that I'm, but I'm pureeing these, pounding them down. Like I say, most most bean recipes that I've ever made from most of the Western traditions that I'm familiar with, pretty much everything goes in the pot and then when the beans are cooked, then you're done. Like the flavor's all sat there with the beans. But in this case, I've got about three tablespoons of ghee here that I'm heating. I'm gonna add garlic, cumin, and uh, the chili powder to this ghee at the end, flavor it, and then stir it in basically at the last minute 
to the doll. So we're not gonna get that sort of muted flavor. We're gonna get a very vibrant flavor from all of these uh, late additions. And I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by this. This isn't really a technique that I'm at all familiar with, but it may very well be one that I wind up using in the future. Because that can be kind of the thing with a lot of bean recipes is that you cook them, you know, it takes a long time to cook them. And by the end, there's not really a lot of fresh flavor involved. You know, maybe you add a little hot sauce or something right at the end, but for the most part, bean recipes are pretty muted and fairly heavy. Whereas I kind of feel like I'm gonna get a lot of vibrant, fresh aromatics here added right at the end, which is kind of fascinating and, and does relate quite a lot to what I was saying earlier about the sophistication with which a lot of Indian recipes treat their spices. Like they add them at different times during the recipes because they're looking for different characteristics depending on where it goes. So with something like this, like I have garlic and I have cumin in my do piazza, but those all went in at the beginning. So they're gonna have a very different character than adding them at the end. So by adding, by combining these two dishes into the same meal, and then, and then also adding them with a fairly neutral flavor like rice or like one of the bread, one of the many, many Indian breads that there are, um, you get a lot of different uh, characteristics out of the same flavors. So this cumin is gonna be much more aromatic and upfronted in your face, whereas the cumin in the do piazza is definitely gonna emphasize more of that sort of slightly bitter earthy. So that's kind of exciting and it's, it's something I've never really grasped until honestly kind of just now. So I've got some ghee heating up. I just added a little bit of garlic to it. And I'm gonna add a couple of tablespoons of whole cumin seeds, which is another difference here, is that these cumin seeds are whole and the ones in the do piazza are not. And of course, a whole cumin seed is gonna give you little intense bursts of flavor, which is an interesting uh, tactic here because you know th this is basically when you look at it it's a big mushy bowl of peas i mean that's basically what we're what we're dealing with is is mushy homogenous paste of peas but if you add little chunks of garlic and occasional cumin seeds and as i'm about to add i've gotten i got a lot of foaming here in the ghee when i added the garlic and when i added the cumin as the water kind of cooks out so i'm gonna i turned it down just to chill with the foaming a little bit because I have kind of a small pan here that I'm cooking this in. Mm. Ooh, very beautiful aroma. So I'm gonna cook those real quick and add my chili powder to it as well. But so since these are all kind of chunky seasonings and they're not finely ground, I'm gonna get different flavors in different bites of my doll. So maybe in one bite I get one with a bunch of chili powder or with a bunch of chili flakes and no cumin. And then in the next one I get a shot of garlic and a little bit of cumin and a little bit of chili. So every every bite's gonna be a little bit different. So it's a way of, of creating a variety within what again is a, is a pretty homogenous paste. And the final thing that Matter Jeffrey is having me add here now that I've cooked my chili powder a little bit and I have this gorgeous kind of reddish foam happening as the last bits of water sort of cook out of everything is I am supposed to add some garam masala about a teaspoon of garam masala directly into the dal and a little bit of salt and so that'll serve as kind of the baseline flavor and then I've got this very intensely aromatic ghee that I'm frying my garlic and chili flakes and cumin in it's sort of blowing my mind really you know I've never really in all the all the Indian cooking that I've ever done I've never really made a proper doll because you know as Ken Albala says in his book as a westerner I tend to shove aside beans and not really treat them with the reverence that they deserve you know even though I'll wax nostalgic about you know red beans and rice or whatever or white beans and I love beans I guess I was kind of underestimating them and now this fairly simple technique here of stirring a bunch of very fresh, freshly made aromatics into my bean dish is kind of got me very excited for beans all of a sudden. So I'm pouring all my ghee and all my chilies and all my garlic directly, directly into my dal, giving it a stir. I mean, it's gone from a just a bean paste to something that's actually quite beautiful. It's got a shimmer now from the ghee, you know, the real luster to it. It smells absolutely amazing. 
and and now it's got these you know these beautiful flakes of uh, my bright red home dried chilies. I might I must I must say. So let's have a bite. Might as well get to bite more later. But hmm, hmm. Oh yeah, yeah. The the chili flakes have added like a little bit of a crispiness to them. It's just it's got a very it's got something I've never really had with beans before, which is it's got a vibrant kind of flavor to it, which is really fascinating. There's little chunks of ginger that you occasionally bite into. It's fantastic, honestly. It's really elevated beans. <laughs> this is really incredibly sophisticated bean cookery. Fantastic. And while we are at it, we can take a look at our dough piazza. Hmm, lovely. So now that my lamb is mostly tender, I am to add my onions my French onions back into the mix. And we're gonna cook uncovered for a few minutes just to simmer off a little bit of this, uh, of the moisture. Mm, it smells really amazing. And the little tiny bite that I had is really sensational. While I was cooking, uh, I took the dog for a walk and just walking outside around my yard, I could smell it and it was, it was frankly incredible. Uh, it was amazing to smell. And then you walk back in the house and you're just like, oh my gosh. So the, the final part of this um, is to, after we've sort of cooked off a little bit of the water for three to five minutes or so, we're gonna let it sit. And that is going to let any excess fat, because this isn't an emulsified sauce. The fat is, is separate in the sauce for the most part. So we're going to let it sit for a little bit and the, and the, any excess fat will collect on top and then we can skim it off, she says. And once that is done, then our dough piazza is finished. So let me fish out a little chunk of lamb here. I don't want a big one, just a little tiny one. There we go. Mm. Oh, wow. Oh, that's gorgeous. Yeah, the lamb is intensely perfumed. Um, once I spoon this sauce over the top of some rice, it is going to be outrageously delicious. A little ghee in every dish, handled a little differently every way. I've learned a lot in the last couple of hours, and I think it's uh, it's stuff I can use in the future. Sure beats <laughs> dumping a bunch of curry powder and stuff and calling it good. Check the Pantry is produced at KBBI AM 890 in Homer, Alaska. It's produced and hosted by Jeff Lockwood. The theme music is String Quartet Opus 10 Movement 2 by Claude Debussy, performed by Quatuor Ebain. This is the third episode of the winter 2021 season of Check the Pantry. Your financial donation as a listener makes this and other KBBI programs possible. Visit the KBBI public radio website at kbbi.org support to help produce programs like this.